This is Meredith, and on today's episode of The Backdrop, I have three small things, a medium thing, and one big thing for us to talk about together. Thanks for joining on The Launchpad. Hi there. I am so glad to be with you today on this episode of The Backdrop. And we are going to be looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, which Mary M. I. Thompson calls the abundant provision of choice wine, but a lot of our Bibles just call the wedding at Cana, which is a much more boring title compared to what really happens. As we explore a few extra pieces today in The Backdrop, I want to point out three small things that happen at the beginning of the passage, a medium kind of thing that's relevant to what Jesus is up to in the miracle, and then answer one big question that I think lingers over this passage. And so first, our three small things, and they show up in the first few verses. John 2 verse 1 says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. I first want to note, that this third day is not likely to be a reference to the resurrection. Rather, in chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus says, I tell you that you'll see greater things. And then it says, on the third day, meaning three days later. It's more a figure of speech than it is an allusion to something significant. John 2, 2 says, Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. A couple scholars note that often wedding invitations went out to family units and Jesus coming to this wedding with his disciples is just another cue of how God is redefining family in Jesus, which is something John brought up in the beginning of the prologue as well when he says that those who receive Jesus are given the right to become children of God. This note of Jesus attending a wedding with his disciples is just another nod to that redefinition of family. The third small thing comes from John 2, verses 3 and 4, which say, When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. There are a lot of questions about what Jesus means here. And one set of conversations says that my hour has not yet come refers to Jesus' death because John uses the word that way in other parts of the, the book. However, There's another theory from Marianne Mai Thompson that looks at how John uses our to refer to Jesus living in the pace that God the Father sets, that it refers to Jesus being in sync with the timing of God the Father. And so Jesus's response to Mary is a cue that he's not going to do anything because she has brought it to his attention, but he will do something if God has asked him to. In other words, Jesus' hour has come whenever God the Father and the Holy Spirit nudge Jesus that it is indeed time to respond. He's not going to do the bidding of human beings, but he is going to meet the needs of human beings and give signs to human beings that they need because that is the will of the Father. So those are the three small things I wanted to explore today. And here is the medium-sized thing. This entire event, Jesus' first sign, as John calls it, is about inaugurating the kingdom of God. It's about declaring a new reality that has come. But of course, Jesus, as a Jew in the ancient Near East, is doing all of this against the backdrop of the story of Israel. He's never acting independently. Anytime he does anything, people are watching, hearing, experiencing that against their broader story as God's people. 
And then they're trying to figure out the meaning of what Jesus does. Now, there are a whole bunch of conversations to have about Jesus's relationship to the law, for instance, to Israel, to the Old Testament, depending on where you come from. Even in John chapter one, there's a thing about how the law came to Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, which brings up questions. How does the grace of Christ relate to the law in the Old Testament? How does the work of Jesus connect to the story we've known so far? This is kind of similar. How does this miracle, this inauguration of the kingdom of God, relate to the story of Israel so far? One option is that this is basically a giant lateral jump, that the old is gone and the new is here and they don't have anything to do with each other. You just leap over and go with Jesus. The other option is that it's actually a move forward, something that would have been expected, that these new things, even these replacements, were actually expected. Mary M.I. Thompson says they would be built in to the people's understanding. Some clues that this might be the case come from passages like Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9, or Jeremiah 31, verses 10 to 14, each of which are prophecies that when the kingdom of God comes, there will be abundance. They use imagery related to wine. They would have been in people's minds as Jesus did this first sign. And when people saw it, those who understood, who had insight, would have thought, ah, here it is, that new thing we expected to come, the replacement of the old that is not jarring or unwanted, but rather the very indication that God is moving us forward. So that was my medium-sized thing. And as we close, I'd like to look at one large thing that is relevant to this passage. It's the question of what to do with all the scarcity we still see all around the world, near and far. There is still so much scarcity. We still see all kinds of ways that people don't have enough, whether it's via the effects of racism or other layers of income inequality, whether it's about education access or food security, whether it's about abject poverty or war, all of these places where we see something so far from what God wants. And the outcome is that scarcity is still feels incredibly real. What do we make of that? After all, I'm coming in saying that this passage is about Jesus bringing in a new reality of abundance, joy, celebration, delight. I do believe that's true. But I understand why it is worth pausing to ask what we do with all the places where it is scarce. And the answer I'd like to offer for now is specifically related to those of us with any level of power and privilege. And this is what I would say. I believe that scarcity is a symptom of sin in the world. And I believe one way it manifests is that people like me who have enough, we still cling as if we don't. We hold on to things as if we are still experiencing scarcity, even though we have enough. And then what that means is, of course, we don't share. We live tight-fisted instead of open-handed. We refuse to be generous. I cannot help but wonder what would happen if those of us who had more believed the truth of what Jesus was doing and acted as though Jesus was trustworthy and then opened our hands to be generous for the sake of those who don't. Now, that's not always going to just mean being more generous with our financial resources, although I do think that's a big part. And we could be giving so much more, but we're scared. Beyond that, though, do we ever vote out of scarcity when we could be voting in a way that would create more good for others? 
do we find ourselves thinking about what our country should do because we want to protect ourselves? Or are we filtering those kinds of issues through the abundance of God who can be trusted to take care of us and who doesn't wish scarcity for anybody? I do think that those are relevant to this bigger question. What do we do with scarcity? John Ortberg will say sometimes that the local church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. And part of what that means is that when people who are part of the church fail in the work that God would have us to do, you will see the effects around the world. So if we do not surrender all of our resources, whether they be resources that are financial, whether they be about skills and talents that we could offer, whether they be about our power and privilege, if we don't give those up for the sake of other people who are beloved by God, might it be that we would not see the will of God happen in those areas? People always wonder why God isn't getting big things done that need to happen when it comes to evil. But perhaps we need to be asking why the church isn't giving, isn't getting big things done that need to happen when it comes to evil. Because we who follow Jesus are part of how God gets it done. Might it be that if we keep living out of scarcity, even if we have enough, we will, of course, continue to see scarcity because that's the gap that our generosity was meant to fill. This is something that we could dive into with far more nuance, take far more time, bring in much smarter scholars than myself. But I do think it's a big question that looms over the passage. And I think it's important to give a few minutes to, because otherwise it can make these promises of abundance and joy and celebration seem trite, which I don't believe that they are. I think that Jesus knew full well that he's declaring something that would have been hard to imagine to a first century audience who largely fought to survive in their day-to-day realities. But it's in that very setting that Jesus creates an abundant provision of choice wine and invites people into a more life-giving way where they are not ruled by the fear of there not being enough but rather live in the trust of a God who can always make anything enough. We're going to wrap things up there for today. But as always, if you have comments, thoughts, or questions, you can get in touch at PomonaValleyChurch at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you to know how these backdrop episodes could be a better resource for you. If you don't yet follow us on Instagram, find us there at Pomona Valley Church. If you have not yet taken the time to rate or review this launch pod, we would be so thankful if you did. It would help people find us and learn more about what we're up to here in our little pocket of Southern California. Until next time, have a great week and we love you all. Bye.